0: Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we talk with the filmmakers behind Elemental, Pixar's most challenging movie to date, which is playing at a Dolby Cinema near you right now. Joining us are director and co-writer Peter Sohn, as well as the film's director of photography, Jean-Claude Kalash. We discuss Pixar's famously demanding story development process and how this movie evolved over the course of seven years.
1: The characters themselves were so impossible. Glenn, like a character like Ember, who's all fire simulation, and, and Wade, who we were just trying so many ways to make him feel like water, uh, took so
0: much of the percentage of our time. We also talk about the unique challenges of animating two lead characters, which are made up entirely of either a glowing iridescent flame or a blob of translucent liquid. And what exactly does a director of photography on an animated film do in the first place? There's a ton of storytelling, filmmaking, and technical insights on today's show. So let's get started. I'm always curious when I sit down and talk with a filmmaker from Pixar. The development process is so long, I'd love to to know from you, what was the movie that you actually started out making and how did it evolve over the course of the development process?
1: Yeah, these, these things take a long time and this film went around in several different versions, but the heart of it was always the same, which. It helped me a lot because you can get quite lost when you're working on something for that amount of time. And, um, uh, you know, the heart of this has always been about trying to thank, uh, you know, the people in our lives that have sacrificed and taken risks for you. And uh, mine were my parents. And uh, um, the actual act of thanking them was something that I had done as an adult uh, at at this sort of ceremony with a lot of people. And it moved me to tears. Uh, And so that was sort of the first little ingredient that kicked this whole thing off. And then the other little ingredient was um, I married someone that wasn't Korean and that, you know, created a whole bunch of crazy culture clash stuff. You know, my grandmother's dying words were like, marry Korean. And she like passed away. And like, it had all this pressure on us. And so that brought this other side to it. And then it was in these world of elements, you know, uh, um, uh, that, you know, I I used to draw these crazy different characters when when I was a kid, but, you know, that being said, you could go anywhere with the story, Glenn. I mean, like, there was a version where, I, you know, just that was just in a written form where fire came from the magma and it was about creating a planet. Like, there was a whole larger story. Then there was a version where uh, it was almost like a godfather story where it was about these, like, warring family clans, these factions. And then there was, like, a version that were almost like superheroes. You know, Ember was this sort of, you know, rebellious graffiti elemental graffiti punk that, uh, um, uh, you know, got into this really dark sort of, you know, xenophobic war with the city, meaning it it went so all over the place. But every time I I went to these different versions, um, there were things that you couldn't feel about the relationships. There was things about, you know, the idea of what the parents were going through uh, that you didn't feel. And then this idea of some of these North Stars that I had talked to you about, about thanking our parents, Brought me back and would bring the film back uh, to what it was, but yeah, there were a lot of versions, Glenn. I, I can't tell you
0: what came through really clearly was how personal the story is, uh, and obviously you have a, a a really deep you know familial connection to the story as well. So I'm I'm just kind of curious how does a how does a story that that that's that intimate and personal survive through this process and then get released by a major studio as a huge summer release? It has
1: been a crazy, I think it's because of the due diligence of trying to make the story work. All those versions that I told you about was us trying to see like, oh, could we fit a more, a superhero version in the movie? Could we fit a more, you know, action-packed version in the movie? And uh, it's so funny because the movie kept telling us what it wanted to be. And uh, we're, we were hoping that like the personal side of it would remain the heart but that the film would have rings around it. So it would be this little intimate story between a firewoman and a water guy, but then there would be a larger family story. But yes, to your point, it was still like this personal thing, but then there was like a city story that they were trying to fix, all trying to fit that within like 92 minutes. Um, But it it honestly told us, you know, like every when I did that sort of superhero version, I remember showing um, the other filmmakers here, and there were so many comments about like, I don't feel anything. Uh, who's this bad guy? This we had this villain named Drip that was trying to take over everything, and uh, I kept getting these comments about like, what happened to the romance? Like, everyone just cared about these ca- characters connecting and what was going to happen, and uh, you know the, the film really became became like it was telling us this thing.
0: Everything I read about this film. Refers to it as Pixar's first rom-com, which I think is sort of a, an interesting way to frame it. So you didn't start making a rom-com; you started with all these different kinds of stories, and then it ended up being, as you say, what it what it wanted to be.
1: No, no, it always had that component and of the, of some kind of connection between the two. Uh, you know, the first question that I asked is, "What what if water and fire could connect? What if they could fell on, fall in love? What would happen?" That was one of the first questions, and so that was always there. It just took. A different form like there was the romancing the stone sort of version of it there was like you know like i was telling you, like these sort of like public enemy versions of it where you're on the run you know and um, um but there was always this idea of, of water and fire connecting through it
0: The world is so well realized. And um, before we get into the design of the look for it, I just wanted to say, like, I I love how you create, you crafted the whole culture and even the language of the fire people back in their, in their homeland. So tell me a little bit about the process of, of filling out that world and, and, and creating all those, you know, different worlds that, that, that are not in uh, element city.
1: Well, that had a lot to do with JC and the art team, meaning, there were two, the characters themselves were so impossible, Glenn, like a character like Ember, who's all fire simulation and and Wade, who we were just trying so many ways to make him feel like water uh, took so much of the percentage of our time that like, you know, once we figured out Ember, um, it felt like, Oh, then we can start worrying about the world and how they would be unified. And, uh, um, I had spent so much time working on the characters that I only had a little bit of work that was really done about the city uh, I, the um, in terms of the look of it. I, I knew exactly all the pieces that I needed to support the story, meaning Ember's Fire, what would be the tough for her, uh, what kind of city would be tough for her, and uh, a city with an infrastructure of water starting to appear. And then we were doing research in Amsterdam, and that's when JC would show me films and footage from, all these movies that would showcase cities like characters showcase water and different lighting scenarios and, and the types of these realities that were, and so it was an in tandem project with JC and everyone as the characters were running that we would now start to utilize um, um, this, this concept of an element city and what what it would take to make it, you know,
0: JC, maybe that's a a good uh, chance for you to, to jump in and tell us a little bit about, about, the influences that you were thinking about, and sort of uh, your the the things that prompted you to with the development of the the visual look of the film.
2: Yeah, the I would say the first month or two, it was uh, uh, me working on the movie. It was constant conversation with Pete and Ben production designer, and I took down so many notes because there were so many great ideas. But there were a few constant uh, things that would pop to the top always. Uh, one of them is the yin and yang, uh, the, the fire versus uh, water. And we kind of held on to this concept and try to see if we can use it in the movie and see how far we can push the contrast, uh, whether it's the city color versus the fire town color, whether it's the water people versus the fire people. We, we really held on to this. And then initially, Pete had this idea. What if when I asked about the look, are we going stylized? Are we going cinematic? And he said, what if it was both, which was really interesting. Uh, We've done in the past uh, more cinematic, we've done more stylized, we've never mixed the two. And Pete, I think you came up with the 60-40. So we're like, okay, it's going to be 60% cinematic and 40% uh, stylized. And to be honest, it opened up a lot of great ideas. It was easy to, the familiar was the cinematic, it was easy to Build on that first, but then deconstruct it and add to it ideas that we've never done before. And it, I would say, that was a good, uh, solid year collaboration uh, with our art uh, lighting director Carlos León and uh, Dancek, a production designer at Four Speed. So it was the four of us continuously on, uh, meeting on a weekly basis and just throwing out ideas. At the end of that year. Uh, we had over 50 great ideas <laughs> and we we almost panicked because it's, it's, it was so exciting, but we didn't know where to start. So we had to whittle, whittle it down. And we came up with a plan for the movie. We came up with a lighting plan and a camera plan for the movie uh, that Pete saw approved, tweaked a few, few things here and there, and we used it throughout uh, the rest.
1: I just wanted to throw in something that I really appreciated that JC had done. We had done this research in New York about um, layers of history uh, in the city, something that I, I did some research going to Chinatown with my mom. And uh, there was this really ornate building that was a funeral parlor. I'm like, oh, this is a Chinese funeral parlor. But then in doing the research, like, oh, no, no, it originally was an Italian bank. And then as the Italians moved out, the Chinese moved in and it became this funeral parlor. And that sort of sense of history was really you know, interesting to understand migration and, and, and cultures moving through a place. And so that was something that you know, talking to JC about when this this family first comes to the city, they move into an earth neighborhood. And like, I didn't have all of the ideas of like, oh, what will the, the, the palette be? What will the shapes be? What will all that stuff? And uh, um, um, to sort of paint this sort of immaculate reality, meaning a world with a history that we're not really explaining, but trying to support visually uh, so that you could still have that cinematic experience of like, oh, this is a realized place with details that you know connect to some history that I that I don't know about but it's enough for me to believe in it you know and uh, the way that JC and the team were highlighting this stuff was something that I didn't think was possible but you know oh, I didn't think it was possible because we were still so focused on these characters to build but uh, JC and the team did an incredible job with a smaller group uh, sort of making adding the scope of of the history to the city
0: I feel like each Pixar film there's almost a, a like a, a story of each film pushes the technology forward and each film takes a specific technical problem and solves it. So I'm curious about the technical problem that you had to solve on Elemental. And I have a feeling you're going to tell me it was, a, it was created by the design of your two main characters. So yeah. tell me about that. I will let
1: JC talk about The hardest character in our film. But let me start off with Ember. Ember is our main character. And like, like JC's talking about the 6040, we were, you know, we had done some experiments with Ember, uh, when we turned her fire on for the first time, where she looked like a Balrog from Lord of the Rings. She looked terrifying. She was this very realistic, demonic fire. The eyes were set in a very, like, really strange way. And it, it, you know, it was really disconcerting. It was just like, oh my gosh, can we even look at a face for this long? It's so, Static. and I mean, it's so busy and uh, um, uh, tough to look at. But our artists found ways to control fire, control this effect. Um, uh, but it didn't end there. It was just even trying to render the close, like the, the shots. Someone told me early on, like, we'll only get five close-ups on Ember because of the her face was so busy. Just five close-ups, and I was like, we can't have a movie with five close-ups. This isn't City Lights where we get one good close-up at the end of the movie. You know, we really need to balance it out. But then as hard as that was, we started, you know, we started to find something that unified about, well, it started to balance what the real was and the caricatured was in that 60-40 thing that Ember became. And then we started moving on to Wade and trying to boil down what would make water water without it being actual water. We tried turning on the water, like a glass of, like a glass of H2O would just be transparent. And you would see the like these dentures of her his teeth in there. And you, it was like, okay, how are we going to do this? And then it took a lot of experiments with JC on each of these characters that you were discovering that were freaking us out. JC, please, if you don't mind jumping on that.
2: Oh, no, I totally agree. And the funny thing, Pete, when I started on the movie, my biggest worry was Amber, the main character. And I, I wasn't even worried about Wade. But um, as you mentioned, she she's a luminous character. So she kind of she does her thing, her light. And what was really cool about her colored light, it came straight from animation. So the performance of Amber had color information in it. So for lighting, in a way, Amber was the easiest character we've ever worked with. Wade was the hardest thing we've ever dealt with, period. And on day one, I remember telling Pete, uh, when you look at water, uh, the environment is the light. And Pete is like, what do you mean? I said. The lights show up on the water, but the building shows up on the, uh, show up on the water and the stuff behind camera show up on everything shows up on the water. So so how do you tease all that information out and still make it look like water? And it took a good eight months. We collaborated with uh, Jacob Kunzler, who was the main shading engineer behind the water. And we would work for a month on a model. We presented to it, he will be excited. And he'll say, yeah, it looks like water in a plastic bag. Like, All right, we missed it. And we'll come back a month later. He's like, ah, it looks more jelly than than I was anticipating. And the eye is very familiar with water. And there are components of water that your mind expect to see. You expect to see caustics and particulates and maybe ripples and reflections and refraction. And anytime you tweak one of those, if you tweak them a little bit too far, it stops looking like water. And it was a big challenge. So I would say after a good eight months of back and forth, We came up with something that we were super excited with until animation started animating weight in that first sequence and it all fell apart because animation they're they're crafting little details like the eyebrow goes up a tiny centimeter and they want to see that well if you have a dancing highlight next to that eyebrow now you're not looking at that expression so water was fighting expression quite a bit. And so it took, it was a moment of panic and then we took maybe spend a month and we came up with some rules like safety zones for his face where you, know, you can capture the performance without uh, sacrificing the look. And what we found that was really cool is the, the brain is very forgiving. As long as part of the model had water information in it and other part, we were not 100% physically correct your brain accepts it. So yeah, it took a, a, a serious collaboration with animation, a lot of back and forth. I would say that first sequence might've taken a year uh, to to perfect another year to perfect the art of water. And of course, the performance of water helped a lot, like the way the magic that uh, simulation brought to water, that helped a lot. So there were so many components uh, that helped uh, uh, make Wade look you know, the way he ended up looking.
0: That's amazing. And, and, and tell me a little bit about the edges of, these, of yeah. both of these characters. Because my first thought was, you know, we're like, okay, well, wait. So he's just basically, he's a, he's, a, he's a clear 3D case that has water in him. But as you just said, that, that approach didn't work. But he also changes his shape, morphs all the way through. I don't, with Ember, I, does she actually have edges? It's, I'm kind of curious about, from a, a computational computer standpoint, what are these characters, you know, what are these characters, these 3D characters?
2: I blame the edges 100% on Pete. That was his idea, but it was a really clever idea. It was bringing the 60-40, the, the realism versus the stylization and make them marry together. I think we called it many names. We called it line art. We called it meniscus. Uh, what was really cool about it earlier on is we would always start with the ground truth. So we would show Pete, here's what it would look like if it was water. And once you had that base, that foundation look, it was easy for Pete to tease it apart and say, okay, I like the reflection, take out the refraction. I know it's the same color of the skin. What if we could do a complement color or we push it in a different direction? So I would say um, visually and from a lighting point of view, it was... Um, Fairly straightforward. I'll let Pete speak about the implementation of um, the, the, the line art in the face, in the, in the mouth, in, 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 in the body. That, w- that was quite a, quite a feat for sure.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the most, I think I was really nervous about that uh, aspect. I remember finishing Godino and uh, um, one sort of criticism of the film I remember was just like Arlo was so caricatured in a realistic world and uh, um, it was always trying to show a little separation of what nature and he was. But when I was on this film, I just my fear going into this was like, oh, my God, we're working with such disparate characters there. could they could all feel like from different movies and uh, trying to unify them was a big you know, um, um, priority. And uh, when we were doing fire, all the tests of fire felt like very different looks than where water was until we found this quote unquote line work that JC's talking about or the the edges like you're saying and so one of our artists discovered with a candle when you find different you know exposures of the candle there's this contrasting color at the edge of a candle that goes like from yellow to a, a thin blue and in that contrast created this line work it looked like an ink line but it wasn't ink and uh, um, but then this art, then the, the same artist Daniel Muñez Lopez did did a water thing, but using meniscus, you know, like the meniscus of a water when, you know, when you're in high school and you're looking at test tubes, they're always talking about measuring that meniscus, that skin of the water became the line work for Wade. And all of a sudden they both had this quote unquote line work made of their, you know, different materials, but it started to unify them. Uh, And that uh, really started our first sort of ingredient to like, okay, then we'll talk about features, and then talking about not having a skeleton underneath them and how transparent they are. But it all started with that idea of that line work that you're talking. And you know, like still as I'm looking at it, there's some, you know, the the, the, the Ember herself. It, because she's light, like JC saying, there were never shadows on her. So anytime we had a dark scene, we couldn't block her out to have us focus on something else because this whole game is all about trying to lead the eye to something. And then all of a sudden, you know, if you were doing an over the shoulder of Ember on Wade, you're just looking at the left corner where this fire shoulder was uh, because we couldn't block it out. In the, and so there was new like sort of camera work we had to figure out to like work around that. And, uh, but oh, I'm, I'm just saying this as, as every way you turned trying to unify something, there was something that took you out of it. Um, um, JC, you said that water, the other thing that I thought you were going to talk about that's so hard was that, like, when he's in a basement, he has a different look. His whole body turns a different color. And then when he's outside in the sunlight, his whole body turned into something else. And uh, he, he was awful to me. He was so hard.
2: <laughs> he
0: was. I just. I, I lo- I lo- it says like you made it as hard as possible because you got your two main characters, one of whom is self-lighting and lights everything that she's in proximity to and another basically absorbs everything okay. and reflects every environment that he's in so you made it as hard as you possibly could have on yourself to do this
2: yeah thank you pete yeah, um, no i'm sorry yeah, I, and it, it got even uh, more complicated with with wade um little things like if you on water if you put a light from the right side it shows up on the left there's a, tiny high, there's a tiny highlight that shows up here. But then I started worrying about how do you communicate that to your team? If you want a light on the left, you say, put a light on the right so that it shows up on, on the left. And little things. And what Pete mentioned was a very big topic. Uh, basically, we quickly realized that uh, Wade is a chameleon. He could take on the color of the environment. And we had a choice. Do we stay with a signature color like amber? Or we do we honor color and do we let him blend in the environment and pete said let's go let's blend with the environment with that the problem is when you blend with the environment you bring complexity so if there's like a red building behind them and a green and a you know a, a blue you put start putting that detail he could become really com- uh, complex so we devised a method that takes the environment around him and blends it all together into simpler colors and simpler shapes so that what you get is the feeling of him refracting what's behind them, but it wasn't that accurate. Uh, We didn't completely remove everything behind them because water is very tricky and will tell you, I no longer look like water, but we had to bring the integration. Uh, We even had a seven step process to integrate weight in the environment. And whenever our lighters would would like get it, they would be called weight certified. They were certified. Uh, for the integration, and it was you know we celebrated those uh, moments because it was a bit tricky to get all these pieces working together. But yeah, we definitely pushed Wade into um, uh, new new frontier in terms of blending him with the environment.
1: Yeah, and the unfortunate thing, well, not unfortunate. The whole trick of the movies that I love is that I don't want the audience thinking about it. You know, like I remember seeing Terminator 2 for the first time and being like. You know, how did they do this? And then at a certain point, you're just not even thinking about it anymore. You're just in the movie. And uh, the, he nods these little details, or Cameron did, about reminding you that this is a man made of metal. Like one of my favorite things that i would talk to JC about is, you know, the, the T-1000, this liquid metal man was walking through a set of bars, but his gun that he was holding couldn't move forward. And there was a little clink. And I remember like all those details to, to just tell the audience that this is real. It's that, you know, don't think about the effect, just think about the character, and it was something that we were trying to do in our film a great deal. I think a lot of places are successful, but there are other places that I can be critical of, but that the joy of the movies is that you're just immersed in it, and as, you know, hearing, talking about it right now, like, it was so difficult, but at the same time, it's also to honor, like, the love for movies that you're not just thinking about, like, holy cow, this looks so so much work but it's just oh I'm with these characters and what's going to happen next
0: like the best of athletes or musicians it's incredibly difficult and challenging but you make it look easy and right. to the extent that the audience is not consciously aware of this <laughs> right. so so that, that that you know good on on you guys so jc i you know we've talked a lot about the development of the characters and the specific challenges around that but i'd like to take a step back and ask about the role of the director of photography in animation i think you know even a lot of people who are professionals working in the industry are kind of puzzled like what does a director of photography on an animated film do um so can you just talk a little bit about kind of what your what your role is outside of the character animation but just when you get into the you know what does it mean to light and to shoot an animated film, and how does that differ from what we understand that job to be in the live action world?
2: Yeah, I think they're very similar in principle. Uh, I always joke and say that if we're shooting a, a scene at 4am, I don't have to get up at 1am because the computer graphic world is is uh, frozen, I guess, so to speak. Um, I think we talk the same language, we talk about uh, the, the color script of the movie, we talk about the color palettes, the color symbolism, the metaphors we use, uh, we, we plan the value scale of the whole movie, the scenes that are high key, low key, middle key. So in that, in that sense, I think we're very similar. Where we differ um, is that with computer graphics, you can bend the laws of physics. You can definitely tweak. You can have a sunlight that behaves like a sunlight, but you can also make it do stranger things. And this is where you open up room for creativity. This is where we had that 60-40 uh, blend in our, in our movie. Uh, but I think in general um, uh, we we use the same language. We talk about exposing scenes. We talk about you know gaffing scenes uh, the a at uh, uh, this and that. We barn lights, physical barns, uh, non-physical barns. We talk a lot about the physical versus non-physical controls that we have. If we have a light bulb, we we either treat it as a light bulb that is incandescent and 800 lumens, or we treat it as an artistic light bulb that. And we did that in the fire shop it's a really cool idea that Pete came up with. He wanted the fire shop to look like a fire shop and a convenience store. So he wanted both. And the best way we were able to solve it is we made the lights in the ceiling start out red and finish blue. And it gave you that mixture and your brain said, yes, it's a convenience store, but there's something about it that is really warm and and red. So I think at the end of the day, it's the there's a lot of overlap between the two. Obviously, we don't have physical equipment. It's all digital equipment. Um, I draw a lot of inspiration uh, from live action. Uh, Pete and I looked at hundreds and hundreds of references. And uh, yeah, in that sense, I would say we're very, very similar too.
0: Would you say that this is um, kind of what makes Pixar the look of Pixar films Unique and distinctive is this focus on, and the reason I ask that is because uh, um, I, I know Jim Morris very well, who's the, you know, the, the the president of the studio. We used to work together at Lucasfilm, and and he was telling me at one point after he went over to Pixar that that he actually organized some trips up to Pixar f- uh, from some of the great live action cinematographers. I think maybe even Bob Richardson was an, was a cinematographer that came up and taught some master classes at at Pixar. And so I'm wondering, you know, was this something that w- this this way of thinking about photographing animation, is that unique to Pixar? And even like the, even being so literal about the virtual camera and thinking about lenses and focal lengths and that sort of thing.
2: I would say so. I think uh, there used to be a Pixar look. I feel now we're so excited that there are many looks. And we're, we I used to be comfortable working on a movie. I'm no longer comfortable jumping on a movie because we're reassessing everything, reinventing everything. I think there's the the fundamental truth about how we use the lights and how we use the camera that is still inspired by physics and you know physical equipment, and I like that because there's always a ground truth that you can start with and then present it to the director and see how far you want to tease it apart or not. Um, uh, Like Soul is a good example uh, where half of the movie felt you know cinematic but the other half was 100% non cinematic and, and stylized and very graphic. So I would say, yes, at the core, we're definitely still, we still geek out our photographs. We bring lenses, we bring real life lenses to the studio. We shoot, we analyze, and then we capture all that information. And then we try to see how to one replicate it and then how to break it apart. So a good example would be a bokeh effect. Uh, we can take a boca and just use it as a physical, uh uh physically based uh behavior from the lens, or we can put information in it. We can we can draw a specific shape. Uh, in the movie, the bokeh started out a little bit more round because life was normal for Amber. Eventually it got a little bit more graphic and heart shaped. And and so yeah, I would say uh definitely inspired by uh live action, but then we definitely uh push push the envelope beyond that.
0: We've got a couple of clips uh, that uh, your team has graciously uh, provided us. So the first one is called uh, Inspect This, and I believe this is Wade uh, when he uh, gets caught in the, uh, in, in the fire shop and, uh, and, and Ember's father serves up some tasty treats for him. So let's take a look at this clip. You really food inspector? As far as you know, yeah. Then inspect this. Dad, that shoots. Yep. All oh, it's good to me. No, 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 no. no. Inspect with your mouth.
2: <laughs> 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 oh. <Uh-oh. laughs> <Uh-oh. laughs>
0: I just, I started laughing because of course this is such a, it's almost, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's a trope, but it's such a, it's a familiar thing. Like the, the, like the father of, of the like serving the spicy hot food and testing the, you know, the yeah. suitor for his daughter's hand, which I love how you kind of take this and keep that literal, but raise the stakes by having yeah. this water creature having to eat these coals. So tell us a little bit about this scene and JC maybe about the challenges of, of, Of lighting and and shooting this one,
1: yeah. Like uh, early on, I discovered you know uh, uh, sometimes when I would take these characters and do something abstract with them, um, I would lose the audience. And so and so, some it hit me like, oh, what if we do something that we all know, but then flip it with the elements? And uh, uh, a big part of the this moment was totally exactly what you're talking about. Like, oh, right, this is that classic sort of like, guess who's coming to dinner, sort of moment. Uh, but they also derive from like you know when my i married someone that was not korean i remember at our at our sort of pre-wedding dinner or what do you i don't remember what you call those but the um, um my wife's family side had never had korean food before or spicy kimchi and the way they reacted to all of that i thought was so funny and we brought it into this moment here but in that way that we could sort of you know exploit the elements and so some of the science tricks that we were seeing and researching between you know when I first started this whole thing, I had an index like a, 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 a index cards full of just science effects of like boiling, freezing, you know, magnification, you know, and like, boy, it would be great to try to use all of these ideas in the movie to exploit the elements. Um, but I tried superhero powers, but that got cold. But once I started tying it to character emotions, uh, it started becoming something more, which is what was so fun about this. And, uh, you know, of course, if he ate a hot coal, we could see the coal go through in there. But what would that look like? Would it just be you know, steam, would it be boiling? And we were just using half reference and then half the, the story artist's imagination and the animator's performance to try to come alive. But there's so many details there that we had to juggle to make it even clear that of what was going on. Uh, like Like JC was saying, this is all virtual. There isn't a body of water where we're throwing any of this stuff in. There is, no, there is no temperature in this shot. It's all being tricked by color and light and effects. And uh, um, uh, yeah, building up to the, like, we always, we never had that bubble that comes out of his mouth open up before. That happened so late in animation. It was just always the bubble that popped in the screen, but the animator all of a sudden shifted the model for that to happen. And uh, yeah, it was so crazy. Yeah,
2: JC, what did you think of that? Oh yeah, I remember that sequence uh, very well. Um... I think that bubble was an interesting question, too, because it was a water bubble inside of a water character. What does that mean? Like you start with a very basic question and then it's cool because people would say, well, you know, tweak this, add the color to this. Maybe it could be a little bit darker. I'm like, oh, OK, I buy it. We, we convince ourselves that you can see water inside water, uh, which physically is probably impossible. But, you know, it kind of it kind of made sense. Um, uh I think the biggest thing we did with that sequence is to capture uh, Wade's um, situation. And we did that with color. We made sure that he was the only blue character in that whole sequence. Everything else surrounded him was warm colors, uh, fire, fire shop colors. And that alone puts him in an uncomfortable situation. And it kind of echoes a little bit what Amber felt when she first ran into Afterweight and ended up in Element City. She was that one fire character, everything else was blue buildings, uh, cooler palettes around her. We wanted to reverse that and have him be in, in that moment. Um, I think there was a lot of choreography per shot, like how many bubbles you saw and you know, because they were building up the you know the intensity of the coal nuts that he was uh, eating. Uh, but it turned out really good, and it was a great, uh, uh, you know, uh, collaboration with effects. The effects team, especially the character effects, um, they they brought so many parts to Wade to life that you know otherwise you would you know you would miss. So it was a fantastic uh, collaboration with them for sure.
1: It was weird shooting the over the shoulders. I think that was one of the sequences, if I remember right, where we did have a little bit more of Ember and Dad's shoulders in the shot looking at Wade because they're so close to each other. But immediately you just kept looking over there. And so you, if you ever watch it again, you'll notice, like, oh, these aren't perfectly paired over, you know, one-on-one shots here, you know, and that they, they were all cheated to try to get there, but they were cheated because the fire was so damn noisy.
2: I was going to say that was a worry of Pete from day one. How do you shoot over the shoulder a character that is on fire or a fiery character, so to speak? And I think the way we ended up solving it, Pete, in some shots we obviously pushed the character slightly off, But in in the the color complexity of amber and the brightness is in the face. And then it ramps back to a red, a darker red in the background. So she still felt like fire, but she did have a bright core in the back of her head. And that helped a little bit with these uh, over-the-shoulder shots.
0: We had the opportunity to watch the film uh, in our screening room in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. And it was just spectacular. You've got a lot of nighttime scenes in this film as well. And the colors are so beautiful. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about working with Dolby Vision and what possibilities were unlocked for you as storytellers with uh, with Dolby Vision.
2: Yeah, it, it was a fantastic experience. It's it almost feels like a new movie you're, you're watching all of a sudden. I think the the contrast the contrast alone, and it's kind of sad to know that all the information is there, but we can't access them on you know on our monitors or F, uh, other uh, media, but. Um, there are a couple of things that are very interested in. Uh, one of them was Amber as a bright source, as a bright light source. I wanted to see how far we can push her brightness and energy. And the other one is those dark scenes and how far we can go to the darkest dark and still see details and still see colors. And uh, you know, Dolby vision is is always, you know, it never fails. It, it makes our movies look magical straight out of the box. With amber, what was really surprising, initially I wanted to push a lot and I pushed Amber and we went to um, a Dolby Studios and we screened it. And we started realizing we we're seeing new colors in Amber that were off character that we've never seen before. And it was a because big. Because red, red
0: is very different in Dolby Vision. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And there was a little bit of panic because it's a character that we spent over a year picking very specific colors. There's over 16 different colors that ramp from one to the other. And at the same time, I wanted to celebrate the energy and the brightness you get from uh, the Dolby Vision. So we ended up splitting the difference. So we definitely got her to a brighter, much brighter level than we're used to. But I kind of suppressed down some of the colors that were not uh her, in her character for instance we started seeing some green in her that were less appealing in her in her father too so we did that uh, with the city with the contrast I mean it's you know the, the image speaks for itself it's so beautiful to be able to have those extreme brights and dark and yet still appreciate uh, all the details and the dark uh, the saturation of, uh, of the dark and the other really surprising thing is when we saw the 3d stereo version, uh, Adobe too, and that felt phenomenal. That was fantastic. It's this first time that I really fell in love with uh, you know our stereo version of the movie too. It's just it was brighter, it was richer. All these things that you lose uh, when you go to a stereo, it felt a, a non-issue to be honest. Uh, watching it with uh, uh, Dolby Vision,
0: I agree with you. That's something that actually we don't talk about a lot. But uh, for me, 3D, I've always felt like I was watching a movie with sunglasses on, right? But yeah, yeah, but. 3D and Dolby Vision, actually, you can get bright enough that it, it compensates for that, for that effect. Exactly. Yeah. You guys have been very generous with your time. I know that, that we're, we're coming to the end of our, our conversation. But Pete, I can't let you go without asking you about Dolby Atmos and the sound. And I know you got to work with the legendary sound designer, Ren Klais, uh on the film. So tell me a little bit about designing the sonic environments and how you, uh, you use Dolby Atmos in the film.
1: Getting to work with Ren was one of the the joys of this whole process. His his attention to detail, look, it boils down to trying to make a great cinematic experience. And um, the Atmos process is key to the greatest cinematic experience. Uh, um, um, In that immersiveness, uh, the balance of music and sound effects, and the control that one has with Atmos... I, I really, honestly, didn't know the depth of it until working with, Kren, with Ren in that, those rooms at Skywalker. And then finally hearing at, at, at Dolby at, at, at San Francisco, fully realized there was a sadness in me of that, like, once it's out of theaters, that I'll never see it in this way again, in the best possible way. Both Dolby visioned the concept of dual projectors and that brightness and the fidelity of the image it's better than our Pixar's theater here. John Hazleton, if you're hearing me, I'm sorry, but it's true. It really is. But at the same time, Ren um, um, created a space where we were always focusing on the emotion and, and the fun of the world. And so, you know, once, you know, how best can you explain this to an audience? There's a process where you are, you you, you start doing the sound design only in Atmos and you get so used to like the richness of like, Pinpointing a sound to let the audience know, oh, there's water coming from behind you, the left corner. There's so much control that you can have there. But then you have to mix other versions of the sound. I don't know if all the audience knows this, but there's a tremendous amount of work where you're redoing the same sound. But what it is, is that you're taking pieces or merging pieces from Atmos into the 5.1, into the, into the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the classic stereo and the whole, the whole, every time we went, we took something away, I just kept going like, my God, Dolby Atmos is incredible. Uh, that is the cream of the crop. The control that they have overhead, the the, 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 the spatial uh, accuracy is unparalleled. And uh, it was so fun to work with and, wa- and watch Ren. He had these controls where he goes, okay, here comes the water, it's coming around us. He'd have these little controls to move the sound around the room with us. Making us absolutely immersed into the moment, and you're not even thinking about it. You're just, feet, your heart is racing just from these simple details that Renwood control. Uh, Dolby Atmos, I just, I'll, I'll, I'll it, all the way. I, I will preach the power of the Atmos plus the Dolby Vision setup. Like I, I, we just, need, Glenn, we just need more of these theaters everywhere. We just need more of them. That's the whole thing, because every theater it's exactly the same experience as what we mixed, which I didn't realize. I didn't realize that every one of these Dolby theaters across the country and around the world have all been set up so that they're not going to pull the audio down. They're not going to dim it down. It will always be as pristine as we saw it. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for Dolby for that, you know,
0: love for the movies well pete i can't think of a better way to uh, wrap up our interview with, than with that we thank you for your love of dolby and uh, we we're encouraging everybody to go see uh, elemental at the at a dolby cinema near you so peter jc thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk to us about the film it's uh, we really enjoyed it and uh, we, we wish you great success with it thank you glenn thank you very much really appreciate it. it's been an honor Many thanks again to Peter and JC for joining us today and also to our friends at Pixar and Disney who put this interview together for us. You can find Elemental in all of its stunning glory playing at a Dolby cinema near you right now. If you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us. The Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list until next time. Thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Sunny Chin. Thanks for watching.